Hi, and welcome to the Indivisible YOLO podcast, a podcast by and for members of Indivisible YOLO. Today, we're here with Dr. Laramie Taylor, who is the head of the UC Davis Communications Department. Let's do it. This is part two of a two-part series regarding mass media and its influence. Content warning, parts of this conversation do mention violence against women and sexual harassment. What role does the United States play in global media? Yeah, that's, um, it's, it's complicated, right? There's a lot of things going on. Um, obviously, the United States produces these, these huge blockbusters um, that, uh, that, that are consumed across the globe. Um, the, the most viewed movie in any given year, the most purchased and the most pirated movie um, are almost always produced in America or produced by American-owned companies. Um, so that's that's one type of influence that uh, that, that it has. But um, beyond that, um, the the um, I know there are characteristics of media or standards of production that get established by these sort of high-value, um, high-input American media um, productions that end up influencing. Uh, other productions around the around the globe. Um, this, could, this can take a couple of different forms. Um, so, for for example, um, there there are often local variants of the same content produced by these global uh, media conglomerates um, as as you know as part of as part of their um, I don't know way to take advantage of of bigger and bigger audiences. So, um, when when American Idol was a was a big deal. Um, it wasn't just American Idol; it was Bangladeshi Idol, Idol, and it was um, it was you know Spanish Idol and Brazilian Idol, and th- there were something like fifty different Idol programs, and they all looked the same. They all used the same color palette. Most of the songs were performed in English. Um, they, it was the same sort of competition-oriented uh, oriented uh, format, where you know it gets winnowed down to to, to one. You know, big winner. Um, it didn't really reflect, to any great degree, local cultural sensitivities. There's some local language, um, you know, in the in the critique and so forth. But um, it, it's interesting to look at at how different Idol is from like the Eurovision Song Contest, which is older and reflects a different set of values. Um, but then Idol, um, you know, or 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 pop star or whatever it was called in different places. Sort of invaded and 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 displaced some of the attention that was given to this other um, this other program for for a number of years. We see that kind of local uh, or American influence on what is putatively local content in other ways too. Um, I did a I did a study with um, several of my graduate students a number of years ago. I just happened to have a uh, be teaching a class of graduate students where we had native speakers of uh, English, Chinese, uh, Polish, Korean, and Hindi. In the same class, everybody in class spoke a different language as their first language, and so we went out into libraries and and, and emailed friends, and we collected um, copies of of magazine covers for the same magazines for like L and Cosmopolitan magazine from all these different countries, and uh, translated the the covers. And we looked at the images, and we looked at the the topics that were reflected in the magazines, and 
And there were definitely regional variations, right? So um, in, in, in South Korea, for example, there's a, a lot more focus on education and on, uh, and on sort of the workplace and so forth. And the United States version of Cosmopolitan and Elle had more sex than anybody else. But the images were startlingly similar. Like the degree of, of, uh, of how do I say this? the degree of explicitness or exposure um, of the, the cover model was identical across every nation, right? The poses were identical. The body type was identical. Um, there, there, there's like this single aesthetic that gets uh, imposed really by the American model on the rest of the globe. And um, the, the, the editorial content beyond the imagery was markedly similar as well. Regional variation, yeah, but underlying that, this uh, this this focus on this handful of concerns, fashion, um, a, a certain kind of heterosexual relationship, um, yeah, mo- mostly mostly those things. You know, sex. Um, this is this is this this sort of monolith um, that gets imposed. And, and I'm sure if we talked to the editors, they'd say, well, that's because it works. That's what people, that's what people want to see. But did they really try everything? Right? Did, did they know that this is the, the best thing? Um, instead, it seems to be this um, sort of radiating influence uh, that functions most explicitly through, um, through shared ownership. Right? If, if, if I'm producing Cosmopolitan in, in the U.S., I'm probably also producing Cosmopolitan everywhere else cosmopolitan is produced and so i i just say this is this this is how we do cosmopolitan okay now make it a little bit indian or a little bit south korean another interesting thing was to see how often english language uh captions and things appeared on the covers of non-english language magazines um south korean cosmopolitan 40 percent of the cover is in english which is an interesting thing um, so we see that kind of explicit kind of influence that's, uh, that's relatively easy to, easy to track and, and, and observe. But another mode of influence is just in competition. I mean, there, there are local media um, production industries in, in, you know, throughout the world, really, um, especially in music. But, um, you know, there are viable film industries uh, throughout Asia and um, less so in Africa and in, in, in Europe. But every movie that they produce uh, has to compete with movies produced by by Hollywood, right? By the um, American movie industry. And um, for a for a blockbuster now, the the sort of normative budget is about two hundred million dollars, and promotion for a two hundred million dollar movie is another hundred million dollars. That's a tremendous amount of money, and there's a certain kind of movie that you're going to make with $200 million and it's going to be uh, sort of visually intense and it's probably going to be relatively violent and it's going to be, um, it's not going to have a terribly complex narrative. The narrative is going to be driven by uh, events rather than uh, people and, and, and sort of social interaction. And if you have to compete with that sort of richly produced, um, expensive, high input kind of production, then you have to you have to do something that's going to compete with it, and the easiest way to do that is to is to take advantage of the cost savings from your locality 
and try to produce sort of the same sort of thing, right? To, to produce something that, that looks the same or feels the same or at least similar enough to, to you know, sort of go toe-to-toe in the marketplace. Now, we uh, talked about international, f- international female representation in the media. Could you speak a little bit more about the um, social construct of gender and how that representation plays a role in U.S. entertainment media as well as entertainment media abroad? Yeah, so this is one of my, um, one of my focal areas of interest, this idea of, uh, of gender and what it, what it means to be um, male or female, masculine, feminine. Um, that's, that's most of the representation. Um, representation of gender is not terribly nuanced. In the um, in the mainstream entertainment media, although there's some interesting things happening right now in in terms of representation of, of queer folk in the uh, in the sort of mainstream entertainment media, and with some interesting, well, I'll just I'll just cut to that real quick. So, um, starting a few years ago, there are some researchers who have done experiments on the effects of exposure to just mainstream representations of, of, of queer folk. And the first study was, you know, Will and Grace. Do you remember Will and Grace? Um, sure. Yeah, so everybody watched it. And and the gay characters in Will and Grace weren't, I mean, the homosexuality was not the focus, right? They were um, sort of buddies or, you know, sort of mentor figures or, or, or things like this. They're, they're, just, they're just folks. But it turned out, even experimentally, watching a couple episodes of Will and Grace led to more positive attitudes towards, towards gay folks and more supportive attitudes towards same-sex marriage. And this has proven to be a really robust finding, that just watching a, a little bit, a couple episodes, um, where representations of homosexuality, not in terms of sexuality, but in terms of sexual identity and so forth, are presented um, has this, this positive attitudinal uh, effect. And um, at the same time that we're documenting this, we've seen a, a growth um, or an expansion, I guess, in, in, in U.S. entertainment media of representations of, of queerness, not, not just in terms of numbers, but in terms of sort of types of representation, right? Um, not all gay people in, on, on TV are, you know, the sort of safe... Um, sort of hetero-passing folks like Will was on Will and Grace, right? We, have, we still have characters like that, but we also have RuPaul's Drag Race in its 19th season or however many, however many years they've been, they've been producing. There's a diversity of representation, and it's... Anyway, so that's, that's kind of an aside. But, um, so in thinking about this question of you know, masculinity and femininity and what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman... Um, we got to remember that people are having or spending a lot of their time looking at models of behavior and models of interaction that aren't real, right? They're mediated. They're either very carefully controlled in the cases of things like reality shows or, or, or news, um, or, they're, or they're just entirely fabricated. They're fictional, right? Um, and it's, it's, it's easy to imagine that spending, you know, Five hours watching TV, which shows this is this is how men behave, this is how women behave. Um, in addition to that, watching an hour of movies a day and spending time on um, on social media and listening to an hour and a half of music every day um, that that has you know gendered and gender coded kinds of behavior. 
is going to be influential on, on uh, how people think about masculinity and femininity and men and women and the way they interact and the way they, and the way they should interact. Um, sometimes this takes really startling forms. Uh, there's some research uh, done uh, by a Dr. Jackson in the, in the early 2000s. He was looking at gangster rap, which was a, a popular genre of, of, of hip-hop back then. And uh, kind of the um, one of the most salient gender codes or cues in gangster rap was uh, to refer to to women as 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 uh, um, using vulgar language, right? Using very pejorative language, alluding to prostitution and 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 things like that. Um, it turns out that even listening to uh, a, you know a couple songs that sort of adopted this tone and this kind of language towards women had a deleterious effect on, uh, on attitudes and beliefs um, held by both men and women who were listening um, with regard to how they thought the sexes should, uh, should interact. The one that, that I found most frightening, this is one of the um, studies that sort of shook me the most when I was in graduate school, was women who listened to, young women who listened to these songs, um, were more open to the idea that a, a boyfriend or a husband hitting his partner was normal and acceptable, right? So, so women listening to this think, yeah, if I get smacked around a little, that's that's just kind of the way it. That's just kind of the way it is. That's that's acceptable. That's not acceptable, okay? And and it's it's frightening that um, these patterns of representation can have this have this kind of influence. Um, you know, and, 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 well, yeah. Um, so one of the things that I do as a, as a, as a sort of a, a large scale project is try to, um, analyze, uh, in, in a relatively objective way, um, the, what it means to be male and female in the world of, of television and the movies and, and music and things like that. Um, I usually do it from the the lens of sort of old stereotypes. Like, to what extent uh, are are women in the media expected to conform to or presented as conforming to uh, old stereotypes? You know, being um, submissive or subservient and domestic um, and and nurturers and 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 things like this. Not not that all the stereotypes are are negative, right? I think. I think we'd all be better off if everyone was more nurturing, right? And uh, and so forth. Um, and on the masculine side, the same thing. You know, the traditional uh, stereotypes of masculinity, um, at least in in most cultures, involve aggression and strength and power and dominance and and uh, and also competence. And the question is, to what extent um, is that is that still being depicted in the media? And uh, and 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 to what effect? Um, so we, we've been talking about international uh, media content, and, and a couple of the recent projects I've done uh, looked at Hindi cinema, uh, sometimes called Bollywood. Uh, some people find that term um, to be pejorative. Um, other people find it to be really positive and empowering. So I'm just going to use Hindi cinema. Um, it's, it's the mainstream um, movie production industry in, in India. Um, Hindi cinema produces collectively dramatically more movies per year than Hollywood, right? They, they, they produce way more. And frankly, they sell a ton of tickets. People, um, audiences in India love their movies. 
Um, they watch a ton of movies. In the United States, the average um, the average person, you know, uh, watches a little less than an hour of movies um, per day. So you, you might see two movies in a week, uh, and and you you probably only go to the theater once every week and a half, two weeks. Except when you're in middle school. Middle schoolers go to huge numbers of movies. That's fine. Um, where was I? Oh yeah, but. In, in India, it's not uncommon for people to go to a movie twice a week in the theater, and often those movies are much longer than, than Hollywood movies. They can be three and four hours, and that's not uncommon. Although that's changing, they're becoming a little more American in their, in their, uh, in their length. But we looked at gender representations in, uh, in, in Hindi cinema, and we looked at it across time. So instead of just looking, you know, today, what does it look like? We said, well... 15 years ago, what did they look like? And then what do they look like over the last couple of years? And, 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 and are there meaningful changes? Um, in the, the first study that we looked at, we were making explicit comparisons with American films. We looked at the top-rated American films from both time periods, the top-rated Hindi uh, cinema films from the same time period, made the comparisons. Um, we found that there were a lot of striking similarities consistent with that idea of um, American influence. Um, women are uh, sexualized and objectified in American and Hindi cinema both, right? The, the focus in promotional materials um, is for women to appear, right, to, 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 to look good. And in both of them, um, the, the main female character that we could identify in, in each film was most likely uh, to be in a relationship with of some kind with the main male character, right? So she was, um, she was not necessarily the, the lead of the film. She was um, usually, a, um, I don't know, an adjunct, right? An attachment, an, an accessory to a certain extent. Um, we also found that uh, that 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 women engaging in violence has been increasing in both American and Hindi cinema across time, um, which some people see as empowering. You know, uh, over the last was it last year we had Wonder Woman in the theaters and everybody watched it and everybody loved it. I loved Wonder Woman. Um, I, thought, I loved Wonder Woman as a kid too. That was my favorite TV show for a good six months when I was about seven years old. Anyway. Um, so people see this as empowering, right? You know, you know, she's a woman and she's strong and powerful and smart and divine and, 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 and aggressive and able to impose her will on others, right? And we saw an increase in that, uh, over time in both American Hindi cinema. Interesting thing is we also saw an increase in violence against women in Hindi cinema during the same time period. Okay. Women more likely to, to get hit right, or, uh, or to be attacked or aggressed against. And often it's, it's by the male main character, right? It's not, it's not just, you know, Wonder Woman fighting Mars or whoever the bad guy is. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's somebody being hit by her boyfriend or the, the, the guy that she's going to be engaged in by the end of the movie. So that's, that's a little disturbing, um, more recently, we, uh, we, we looked at Hindi cinema where we watched 100 films, 50 from a decade you know, prior to the study and then 50 from, from the years in which we were doing the study. And we picked those time periods in that case because in between those two periods, 
um, was the, uh, the, the, the bus attack in India that made the news globally, um, where uh, a woman and her boyfriend were attacked on a bus and she was, uh, she was gang raped and beaten to, beaten to death. Um, and it was horrific and it was in the news globally and pressure was brought, brought to bear uh, in, in India and in the, um, in the government and, and there was pressure applied saying, you know, we have to do something. And uh, rights groups um, found a voice and they said, they said, you know, we need to change things. This is not acceptable. Um, laws were passed. Um, there's a lot of rhetoric in the, in the news um, in India saying, you know, this is a new day. Okay, this this is a thing we're putting in the past. Um, we're 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 going to build our society moving forward on more egalitarian terms. And so we try to look at whether that was whether that was happening, uh, at least as expressed in the cinema. And to a certain extent, we found that it uh, that it was. Um, we found that there is an increase in the number of representations of women who did not strictly conform to traditional. Uh, feminine norms of, of, of Indian womanhood, right? Um, those are a little different than American norms. There's uh, something they refer to as husband worship, um, where, you know, the world begins and ends with the husband until you have a son, and then it begins and ends with your son. Um, things like, uh, like absolute filial loyalty, like your parents are semi-divine until you're married, and then your, your in-laws are semi-divine, and come right after your husband and, um, you know, there's a different standard of feminine appearance. Um, but you know, there's some overlap with American uh, stereotypes as well, you know, made up and, 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 you know, careful work on your hair and attention to wardrobe and all that kind of stuff. There's more violations of these kinds of expectations in more recent years in Hindi cinema, which is nice. Women are, you know, being presented more realistically and more diversely, and that's great. But we found that there were some limitations to that. Right? First of all, we didn't find any women in the 100 films that we looked at um, who weren't conforming more than they were not conforming. Right? So the women are still being presented as mostly um, stereotypically, traditionally feminine Hindi women. Um, and, and, and that's how they're being presented. We also found that the outcomes for women in these films depended to a certain extent on their conformity with these gender norms. So women who were, uh, who were you know, out there breaking the mold and, 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 and being rebellious and so forth, um, they experienced less positive life outcomes. They were less likely to be rewarded, encouraged, um, you know, get the raise at work and end up with the happily ever after kind of story than were uh, women who conformed to more of these norms. In addition, there were punishments that accrued across both time periods uh, if, if, you, if you were different, right? For women that were depicted as, as breaking outside of some of these stereotypes, bad things were more likely to happen. Um, not not necessarily overtly tied to their uh, gender behavior, but negative things nonetheless, mocked, attacked, um, beaten, um, experiencing setbacks in, in, in life and relationships and profession and, and so on. So um, in a lot of ways, things look like they're getting better, 
but there's still the same sort of patterns of of uh, of rewarding and reinforcing a narrow view of, of, of femininity that is, is probably constrained and problematic. Um, we, can see, we can see some of the effects of these, uh, of these other kinds of expectations as well in some experimental work that I did. We, um, we came up with, with film clips where the, uh, the, the main character, the main, you know, the female protagonist, um, either conformed to sort of traditional stereotypes about feminine attractiveness or not, and where she was aggressive, meaning physically violent, or uh, or physically sort of passive and 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 uh, and, and non-aggressive. So we showed people these, and then we just we just gave them a, a questionnaire that that asked them about their expectations for women in general, right? So. Um, to what extent do you think it's a woman should be nurturing and supportive? You know, to what extent do you think it's important for a woman in school to to help her classmates and, and others? Um, to what extent do you think it's important for a woman to win at any cost? And things like this. And what we found was that seeing the violent, stereotypically attractive woman increased expectations for women on essentially everything. So you see um, somebody like Wonder Woman, right, conforming to stereotypical traditional kinds of attractiveness um, and being very aggressive. Uh, afterwards, you don't think, oh, yes, women can do anything. You think, you know, women really need to do everything, right? They need to, they need to be um, strong and powerful and ruthless and nurturing and caring and loving they need to they need to be everything they need to do everything relatable content <laughs> yeah we call it, it's called the superwoman syndrome and 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 i th- i think that kind of hits the nail on the head right it it says that there's this ideal that you that you have to live up to and it's an unrealistic ideal i mean wonder woman's perfect as an example right she's a god and that's why she could do this. You and I should not be expecting this of of each other, or most especially of ourselves, right? I mean, what does that what does that do to me, the viewer, right? As a as a young woman, um, if if my expectations are that women need to be both ruthless and a hundred percent successful and aggressive and nurturing and supportive, and they need to be everything all the time. I can't live up to that. What do I think about myself as a consequence? It's dangerous. As you wrap up, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, you know, I just wanted to share some details from one other study that I did recently with some of my grad students. We looked at, um, you know, it was inspired really by the the, the, the Me Too movement and the era that, era that we're in. And we looked at, um, at sexual behavior and comments in workplaces on television. And uh, we, we coded what kind of behavior was engaged in, um, just in, just in workplaces on TV, um, and how people responded to it uh, in terms of you know positivity, negativity. Do people laugh? Is it supposed to be a joke? And and and, and so forth. And what we found is that there's a tremendous amount of sexual behavior and sexual comments, especially sexual comments in the workplace um, on on television. We looked at a hundred shows. There were less than a dozen that did not have any sexual content in the workplace. Uh, on television, we're looking at cop shows and 
and lawyer shows where people know better, or in the re- in real life they would know better. Um, so it's incredibly pervasive. Um, the thing that maybe disturbed me the most was when we looked at the responses of other characters to those sexual behaviors. First of all, in not one episode was the behavior behavior labeled sexual harassment. Not one. Um, so we have, you know, all these behaviors and comments, totally inappropriate. It's never labeled sexual harassment. But even more disturbing than that is the fact that the characters are utterly nonplussed by this behavior, right? They, it, it, it's the, the most common response to sexual comments is no response at all. It's not critiqued. It's not shot down. It's not laughed at. It's, it's just nothing. It's absolutely ordinary in the world of television work. So we're in a moment when we're talking about sexual harassment in real-life workplaces, but what do we see when we turn on the TV? That it's no big deal that everybody does it. It's just part of the furniture. Well, Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, thank you. 